Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. Howdy, and welcome to the Where to Hunt podcast, the podcast that connects public land hunting enthusiasts. Today is September 13th, 2018. We are one day away from the Wisconsin bow hunting deer opener. Did I just say that right? Bow hunting deer opener? That sounded pretty weird, but I've had a lot of coffee and it's uh, getting late here tonight. But I want to get this episode published because it is jam-packed with great knowledge. In fact, It's funny because I do the quote unquote tip of the week on every episode um, after the interview. And this week, the whole entire episode is the tip of the week because there are so many tips jam packed into this episode. It's going to blow your mind. Um, We brought on guests, uh, two different biologists who are hunters first, but then also biologists. And they are ambassadors of the Bowtech brand. And they have a... um, show called Whitetail 101, and it's brought to you by Bowtech, but it's also on Carbon TV, it's on YouTube, and it's on Bowtech.com's website. And uh, Jeremy Starks and Dave Miller are the two guys, and uh, we cover you know the way deer communicate, their food and browsing behavior, and the nutritional value that they get in food, and why they seek certain foods out. We talk about their bedding and pattern movements of transitions, their sight, uh, the deer sight uh, and, and smell capabilities, as well as even deer body language. So we cover a lot of ground. There's a lot of good information in this episode. I wanted to get it out and published ahead of the, the bow season opener to help everybody in the woods this year, this season, especially early on, that the, the, the lens of this episode really is early season bow tactics, and it goes deep into tactics. Um, that being said, hopefully this episode will continue to add and provide value and knowledge to hunters who are either a just starting out, intermediate, like me, the world's okayest hunter, or even some of the more advanced hunters that are out there. This should speak to everybody in that spectrum one way or another. Um, so please share the episode if you would and rate the podcast. I would love that. That does mean a lot to me. I say it every episode that your feedback, not only does it mean a lot to me, but it keeps me going. And uh, your feedback is what keeps me going. I don't have sponsors. So it's super important to me that I do get that feedback. So I know that I'm actually giving you guys and gals what you want to hear. That being said, I'll shut the hell up. Let's bring on our guests and uh, enjoy. Okay, so I want to go ahead and welcome this week's guests to the show, plural. Uh, Today with me, I have um, biologists, but hunters first, Jeremy Starks and Dave Miller. And... uh, they're brought to you by uh, Bowtech, and uh, it's the Whitetail 101 show that I discovered on um, the, what, what is the, the, the Carbon TV app, is how I found you guys. Well, we're, we're glad you got to watch it, and hope, uh, hope everyone enjoys it. Some of our tips, we've been trying to you know, explain some of our tactics that we use, and just break down hunting to the simplest form we can that's a great place to start i you know it's interesting because there's hunters of of all walks of experience right some people are just getting into it or they're fairly new or green and then you have people that have been at it for a long time and i think that um if you're if you're done learning then you should just be done hunting because there's never you can never learn enough (laughs) about hunting so this should be valuable for anybody in in that spectrum well, Dave and I both kind of approach hunting from, we really try to, to teach people the science behind it and and try to keep our opinions to ourselves and just give people the facts and then let them make their own conclusions. And that's one of the things that we've kind of set out from the beginning with the show 
is we're going to teach people about whitetail. Let's teach them how their vision works, how their sense of smell works, and and let them you know kind of grow into to being a better hunter by just using those and and being armed with that knowledge. I I love it. I did. Um, there's a there's a guy here in Wisconsin who's I don't know if he's a legend, but he's been around forever. Uh, Dan Small, and he's with the Outdoor Wisconsin. It's like a TV show. Um, I've been watching since I was a kid, like a little kid. And, uh, you know, I had him on last two or two years ago, I think. And we kind of try to break it down that way. We just kind of try to talk about the biology of it. And I wanted to know more about why deer are doing what they're doing. So that way you could take a different approach, take the subjectivity out of it. And so I love that that's your approach. Um, some of the recent videos that I've watched that you guys released the, a few of them and not in any particular order, but, um, you know, as it relates to early season bow, I kind of want to take that lens and put it through everything that we're going to talk about today. And one of the videos was the communication that, that you know, deer utilize scrapes for. And um, I'll let you kind of unpack that a little bit. I don't want to keep talking. I'll let you guys go. Well, Dave, do you want to talk a little bit about that first? Yeah, yeah. I can, I can definitely uh, chime in on that because... Uh, out on the property where we live uh here in West Virginia we've been we've been watching the the bucks out in the front field and they've already they've already begun really getting uh, aggressive on the scrapes <clears throat> excuse me um but you know one thing that Jeremy and I have uh have witnessed in, in the past and we've also heard other people say is that they've noticed that you know scrapes are in areas year round and we've noticed that the deer use these scrapes year round as a form as a form of communication where a lot of people think they only scrape during the rut and then you'll hear people say oh my gosh they're already scraping when in actuality deer deer scrape year round They've been doing it uh, time, for sure. means of communication but in, you know, even you know, the, yeah the the fawns communicate with their with their yeah. mothers and bucks communicate with one another in bachelor groups you know, to hear someone say, well, they're already scraping, you know, they'll start to use more scrapes as yeah. the rut progresses, but they scrape year-round. They use licking branches year-round. So it's it's just a matter of, of understanding what you're looking at. And one of the, probably the, the, the biggest mistake I see new hunters making is setting up on a, a scraped line. Now, if you can find a what I call a super scrape or community scrape that a lot of times these are the size of of a small car, then that can be a really good place to set up. But just setting up on a on a scrape line that can be difficult because often those deer may only check that once a week, and when they do, it's quite often nocturnal. Mm-hmm. So, where a community scrape or a large communication scrape, and you'll know these are much larger. Um, they may hit that five or six times a day. Oh, wow. So okay. those are the kind of things you want to look for. Exactly. And, Jeremy, that's something else to add to that. Exactly exactly what you said. The larger scrapes are are, a, uh, are used for communication, and a scrape line is usually a territorial thing. It, right. it's us- usually they apply that to mark their individual scent and location and and try to apply their dominance in that in that area where a community scrape is a an area where they they do they several deer will use that so help me understand uh, a little bit the the science behind that so i kind of my mind was going there um you know when you said these the, the deer are using it for communication and when you said the bucks use it to communicate with each other it kind of to me i thought that was that was it like territorial um dominance but if it's a community scrape, what are they trying to, what is the, is it the same thing? What's going on there that makes it a community well, scrape? Well, they're leaving, they're leaving their scent um, each time they pass that, whether it's a doe or a buck, a doe will urinate in it as often as a buck will. And they're leaving their scent. Now, when you have a, a um, the ability to smell that a whitetail can, they can break those individuals down and odors and detect layers they can see how many does were there i mean it's yeah it's unknown we haven't studied enough to know exactly what all they are breaking down there 
but they're, they know how many does have come through there. They know how many bucks have come through there. So it's just the herd communicating within itself. There, there is a it's kind of like a check-in or something like, hey, I'm, we're, I'm in, is. I'm here, I'm here. Yeah. It's kind of like a show of hands, who's here today? <laughs> you know, okay. Yeah. Yes. There's a community scrape over in the corner of the field I watch every evening. And, you know, up until this past week, the deer have the deer have been all using it, and they've all been everything's been fine. But within the past week, the the larger bucks are now guarding that. Like they will they will be around that area feeding, and if a small buck starts to come over to it, the big bucks will actually the two larger bucks, more dominant bucks, will go over and stand in between them and the scrape and not let them come to it. Like you're not you're not invited. We're not letting any more people, any more deer into this area or to this herd or whatever you want to it's call like, it. It's like they're almost beginning to to stake claim on the, sure. these on the groups of those that are in the area. So, so you know, not so we don't talk too much just about scrapes, but the the general consensus is, and in, in our opinion and and the science behind it, is find those community scrapes, find those larger what we call super scrapes. And and just don't stay hunting those little scrape lines along the edge of a field or on a a logging road or you know on a ridge. Try to find those those areas, and and you'll be much more successful. If you're going to set a tree stand up, that's where you need to be. Yep. Yeah. One of the other I so I ended up getting into the the YouTube channel from Botech and. Um, clicking into the the playlist for the the whitetail 101 and i know you guys mentioned a little bit of like postseason scouting uh i think it was like maybe march of this year and and one of the things that i noticed you guys touched on a little bit was bedding and uh you know i've had dan infault who's from wisconsin here on the show twice and i follow a lot of his content and he he you know prides himself on being a bed hunter primarily and so the science behind deer bedding that seems a little bit more um, that that makes a lot of sense to me, right? Because it's more like the habitat and, and what's around them. So, sort of like, how do you use landscape? But maybe you guys could shed some light on some of that stuff too, and kind of maybe there's something there I don't know, right? There probably is something I don't well, know. <laughs> I mean, every every piece of property and or region is going to have better bedding areas than others, and you know, it's it's similar to to all other aspects of nature. The the most dominant is going to get his choice of where he wants to bed. And the premium bedding areas, especially for large bucks, are areas where they can see and still feel protected. And, you know, in contoured and in mountains, quite often that's on a point where they can back against a bank, but they can see over the mountain. Um we notice in farmland a lot they'll bed on a hillside especially a pasture if there's a slight hillside they really like to bed right in those pastures um what would seemingly be in plain sight but they can protect themselves by their vision and watch and make sure that you know they can they can see any any problems coming from a distance and so quite often what we consider prime bedding area isn't always what we had thought in the past just because you have a thicket doesn't make that a good bedding area um early successional habitat can be really good bedding area which is just that first growth you know you got a lot of forbs tall grasses but not necessarily an autumn olive thicket you know it's just because it's this thick gnarly area doesn't make it perfect bedding cover um you know it it's not just what's growing but the contour of the land and in relation to its feeding source and water source are also important. So you have to take all that into consideration. Um, Dave and I both are big believers in using aerial photography and mapping software where we can really take an overlook to the whole property, especially when you're hunting public land. Um, you know, there's no greater time to really utilize aerial maps. You can, you know, you don't have the the convenience of just going and hunting this private farm you can really look at it as a whole and you know you can plan on how can i get further away but also you can look at pinch points and in watering areas and feeding areas so um we prefer that even more so than just walking all over the property 
which is something we tend to, to shy away from other than that late season scouting. We we do most of our walking around in March and April. Yes. Yeah, that's you know, and that's a good point. And you know something else to add to that, um is we've really, really um been watching our watching the properties and paying attention to how much how much pressure impacts where deer where deer bed and where they the areas that they use. Um, you know, in areas where deer aren't pressured on properties where they're not pressured as much, you know, deer deer may not go far from their feed source, especially in early season. Uh, they they may not bed far from their feed source at all. But in areas where there is a lot of movement and traffic and deer are picking up on a lot of, uh, they're not really comfortable, sometimes they may push back and tuck back into areas that are a little thicker. So it really, really paying attention and evaluating the pressure on the property that you're going to be hunting is, is, is very, very key, especially, and, and also paying attention in early season when there's a lot of, uh, foliage on and later on in the season. Sometimes also when the, when the leaves fall and the vegetation dies down, sometimes the deer will travel further back into the thicker areas to bed where they may have in early season been bedding just on the edge of a field where it was thick. And you guys are telegraphing my questions perfectly. I was going to ask that based on, because we're talking early season, right? Yep. So here in Wisconsin, our season actually opens yep. this Saturday. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, if, everything's really green right now. And I think, you know, yep. that has to be making a difference in where the deer are bedding now versus late season when the leaves oh, fall and the corn's been cut, that kind of stuff. Um, you yep. know, but then that's great to, to say, of course, that's what's happening, but it really is tricky to pinpoint some of that stuff. So you mentioned like take all of these things into consideration. Um, It can be overwhelming sometimes to think like, well, now I got to play the wind and I got this pinch point. I have these other hunting, hunting pressure and (laughs) man, it it really, um, how do you guys dissect a property having, being armed with the knowledge that you are with understanding deer behavior better than probably most people, right? Like even, even the vegetation, you've listed off some of the types of vegetation and you know, I'm lucky that, I can I can barely tell an oak tree between you know red oak and white oak and <laughs> I picked that stuff up over the years but like there's a lot of it gets pretty deep the knowledge base that you have to have if you're really going to get well, at it. One you know? thing it, we we've mentioned this several times in in some of our shows is one thing that I do recommend all hunters do is is really learn a basic knowledge of plant taxonomy understand the different oaks and the different you know food sources especially when we're looking at forbs and in greenbrier and sassafras and and then when you go out and you are doing some of your scouting pay attention to the food sources and how they change mm-hmm. because you can have for instance in late may early june you can have an, and we've got a lot of them we have some beautiful clover and alfalfa food plots that are hardly being touched, but the fresh blackberry and sassafras that's growing on the, you know, you have this early successional habitat around these fields is just being browsed to death. And if you weren't paying attention to that and know these species, you would completely miss it. You know, there's pokeweed at certain times of the year that they would prefer over anything. Um, Blackberry, blackberry, Elm. Elm is one of the most important browses there are for deer and learning to pay attention to where they're eating it, greenbrier. All these things are important um, instead of just going out and saying, okay, here's an oak tree and there's some acorns under it because these food sources that I just mentioned are actually high in protein, which is, you know, that's what they're requiring all through those early or late spring and early summer months. Then as we get into late summer, early fall, the acorns start to fall, and they, they require more carbohydrates. So and, and Jeremy, the protein. And, Jeremy, even as you had mentioned, you know, the, even the oak trees that you had mentioned, different oak that's yes. it's very important to learn those. Different oak trees will mature and fall off at different times. And so I was going to say, yeah, they fall at different you know, times. So what might have worked last year yeah. if you're hunting a sa- the same property, you might not be the same this year based on well, how it's falling or producing. and. Well, red oak um, is a two-year growth cycle anyway. If this oak produces this year, it is two years before it produces again. 
um, where a white oak produces every year, a mm-hmm. chestnut oak will produce every year. So you have to know those, you know, you may, like you said, you may have been hunting a red oak flat that was loaded up with deer, but they're not going to produce for two more years. So um, those are important aspects. And, and, and some years, about. and some years, you know, when you have a mass fail, some years there are mass fails, you know, depending on if there's, you know, really harsh, Late freezes, or you know, di- different different things can cause it. But you know, on those years when there's mass sales, then you know you need to learn to read that as well, and 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 know where the deer are going to be using um, early successional growth. Uh, like Jeremy was saying, especially when the clover fields and alfalfa and uh, the beans are all gone, uh, you need to know where the deer will turn. So. Yeah, learning learning the taxonomy is is very key. That's a that, that's something that I strive to get better at all the time, and it's it's just interesting because it it's so interesting. So I I love learning it. It's just there's so much to cover. But what I what I wanted to ask uh, to dig deeper into that, Jeremy, you had mentioned that you, when you understand what the deer are actually looking for from a nutritional standpoint, they um you're saying that they require protein in you know like you know um spring into summer but going into fall you said they they might require more carbohydrates and the acorns are well, more you know, they, rich with that so is that people say deer love acorns is that because they they want or need that food source at this time of year and that's when hunters are getting back in the woods by and large or well you know mother nature done a pretty good job of taking care of, of everything <laughs> and we've yeah. we've adapted pretty well and the animals have to mother nature so as as their nutrition needs change through cold weather, you know, it's just that's when these acorns are hitting the ground and providing such a high carbohydrate, keeps them warm, puts fat on them uh, quickly. Where in the summer, you know, we all think there, there's so many little misconceptions. We all, you know, you see rack attack, and I'm not picking on them as a brand. Sure, sure. But you see all these minerals, and I am a, you know, Dave and I both are, big-time believers in minerals, but it's not something that you can put out right now this year and make any impact. It It is a long-term process because deer grow their antlers by borrowing mineral from their bone. So they bank this mineral in their bone, they borrow that, and they can actually lose up to 20% of bone mass while they grow antlers. So, so you're not going to change that by by putting out some mineral this spring now long term keeping that out you know dave and i on on our leases dave what do we use thousand pounds of mineral this year probably a guarantee and so that but we'll do that again and again and again and again so over time it really matters and it's probably more important honestly for the fawns um and and the nursing and lactating does than it is anything because if you can get that buck started off in the right direction where he has a healthy bone structure, mm-hmm. you know then he's going he's he's going to have a lot better chance in the future. So it's not a it's not a matter we're going to do it quickly and it's you're not going to see instant results, but it's just something we need to do. It's going to you know we're going to have a healthier deer herd and you're going to see long term you're going to see increased antler size. Yep. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people do have that misconception about about minerals and different different things, uh, different things like supplemental certain supplemental seeds uh, that they use. But in reality, uh, every deer has a genetic potential. You know, every deer has a genetic potential it can reach, and it can either be hindered or reach that. Uh, it can be hindered by pressure or lack of nutrition, but. In the spring, just typically, it, it is the reason you you would supply a better, a higher protein source is you want to build you want to build the body. This is just generally speaking, you want to help build the body mass of the deer, and then in the fall to eliminate stress from the deer getting cold, you would want a higher carbohydrate uh, feed source, food source, so that the deer's body don't get too cold, so that they they make more body heat and. Uh, and by doing that, uh, providing protein in the spring and summer, and then providing more uh, carbohydrate um, along with some protein in the fall, uh, those two those, those are traditionally two good uh, tactics to help a deer reach its genetic potential for, for its antler size. 
Man, you guys weren't kidding about the science part of how you approach things. No, we... It's, it's impressive. That's been our goal. <laughs> you're, you're hitting your goal. <laughs> I mean, this is... This is exactly what I was hoping for on this particular episode. It's just jamming it full of great info and content and knowledge. Um, you know, it's interesting that, that you mentioned, like, if people, not to knock on that brand or whatever, that, you know, um, but some of these companies do a great job marketing to people, and people get into a big retail store or they get online and they're advertised to, and they just pull the trigger on anything and everything because they don't have some of this knowledge to support what they're trying to do. And so people get all mixed up and they think there's a silver bullet for hunting and that's just not the case. No matter what it is, things can help and improve incrementally and collectively, but mm-hmm. there isn't this thing that's going to change things. And that's another, that's a whole other avenue, like the antler girl thing. But I don't have that, that ability. Yeah, we could do an anymore. entire episode just on, we could do an entire episode just on minerals. That's, you know, he and I both are <laughs> such good proponents of that and, and how important it is. And, you know, this time of year, it's less important. It's really important in the, during the fawning season. Mm-hmm. And and we we freshen them up then. I mean, don't get me wrong. We keep minerals out year-round. But during fawning season, we're putting it out every other week, <clears throat> you know, keeping those mineral licks really fresh. Yeah. Yep. Um, man, I, have, I just have so much I want to cover here. So... The other thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit too for, for looking at, um, I had one thought, but I'm, I forgot it. So I'm just gonna move on to my other one, but if we're talking early season <laughs> bow and, and trying to pattern deer, some of their behaviors, people talk about like deer are by and large nocturnal animals just naturally, but there's a lot of chatter. Well, no, well no, no, they no. go more nocturnal as hunting pressure kicks up. Now, how, how true is that? Well, it is true. They're not, I mean, I guess you can find different scientists will tell you a different answer, but um, it's generally accepted that they're not naturally nocturnal as much as human pressures created them to be nocturnal. So, you know, they're still genetically involved to see much better at night than we are, but they're still not necessarily a nocturnal animal. Um, but pressure creates that. I mean, it's easy... Um, Time and time again, we hear guys say, I was on a really good buck, and I hunted him out of this same stand 19 times in a row, and I can't see him anymore. Imagine why I see him at night. And there's, <laughs> there are, you know, the way you approach a stand on, well, let me let me say this before we talk about how deer becomes nocturnal. One of the biggest misconceptions about the way a deer uses its scent or its sense of smell is how they process that. And deer smell in layers. They they can, you know, they're not walking through the woods and smelling every single thing and their brain is taking note of it. Yeah, they're like smelling prison, like we right? see. Jeez. Okay. Hey, right. hey Jer- Jeremy, be sure to go, hey, when you're talking about this, be sure to go over that concept you know I've talked about. About, about the how, elk? About how deer know when, right. when um, something is present or not. Well, yeah, there's, yeah to, go, go over that. Yep. To a deer, um, you know, they're, they're smelling in layers. So when they're walking along, they're not saying, okay, over there's an acre and there's a dry log, there's a some moss. They are they're smelling like we see. So it's just this giant. And, and I explain it to people like this all the time. <clears throat> if you have two guys looking at a mountain, Excuse me, and there's an elk standing on that mountain, but only one hunter can see it. But both of you are staring at that mountain. Both of you see that elk. Just one of you haven't picked up on it yet. Does that make sense? You know, you're physically looking at the same mountain I am. Makes sense, yeah. But but your brain hasn't picked up on it. Well, it's the same way with deer. If they're not looking for you, they may smell you, but their brain doesn't break it down and identify it. So when you go to your stand and you're not wearing rubber boots or you're, you know, you're leaving, you're touching every branch there and you're not wearing a hat and you're dropping as much skin cells as you can, now that deer doesn't mind smelling that. Trust me, it doesn't spook them. 
but they know to start looking for you. Because a deer definitely knows the difference between has been there and is there. That's what Dave was referring to. If a if a deer smelled a coyote or a human every time they walked through the woods, they'd panic and wouldn't walk anywhere. But they can tell the difference that if you're currently there or not. Now, there's a lot of studies that show that it's the breath you're smelling because of all the volatile organic compounds that we're breathing which makes more sense to me than anything. Um, but, you know, proof of that is go take your jacket and hat, put it beside a bait pile of corn or apples, hang it right on a tree, put a camera there, and 20 minutes later there'll be something eating there and we'll pay a bit of attention to your clothing there. But if you're standing there breathing, you can sit there till the end of time and they're not going to come up there. So as long as you can keep that deer from looking for you, the chances of you being winded are much less. So that's why hunting a stand the first time is quite often when you're the most successful. And, and going into a stand and walking right through the area where the deer is, that's a mistake as well. Your angle of approach to a hunting stand it needs to be as carefully thought out as the stand location itself. True. You know, there's many times that be, I won't put a stand detected. somewhere. Right, like it increases your odds. Right. Like before that, I'm. Well, I mean, they're going to figure out you're there. It's just a matter of when and how, and if you can, kind of put a, a gap between you and it, that it, happening. It's like in the rut. You know, you hear guys, "Well, deer don't care. They don't wind you in the rut." It's not that they don't care. It's just they're focused on something else and they're not looking for you. And and again, when a deer's not trying to find you, they often don't wind you. It's when you leave those little telltale signs. And once you've been busted in a stand once, that deer looks for you every single time it comes back to that stand. And if it's looking for you, you have no chance. It's true. That's why. You just don't. Not on a mature. Now, you might on a three year old, you might on a four year old. But when they get six and a half and seven and a half, they're a whole different animal. So. Yep. Do you agree with that, Dave? Oh, one hundred percent. So tell 100%. me, tell me about that a little bit, based on age. Is it because of repetition and some sort of muscle memory with their mind? Are these animals actually getting well, smarter you, as they age? What's actually happening there that a two or three year old wouldn't learn, having gone through that that a six or seven year old would? If you, if you had to play paintball with a three year old kid or a ten year old kid, which one would you think you have more success against? <laughs> So it's similar. It's just it's just the way the the so the mind of that deer, the brain of that deer, isn't as fully developed. Is that kind of it? Right. Well, it's it's think about how many more experiences that animal has had. Sure. And yep. the contact that it's had with with people and and predators. So there's so much more contact it's had, and so many learning experiences it's had. So. And I will I'll, I'll say this too about. About on some of the properties where where I have been more more like active, where I have been actually on the property more, going out to uh, working the land, you know, doing certain things. Deer, you know, there's a term uh, in psychology called classical conditioning, uh, where where people and and even people and animals will become accustomed to things once they're exposed to it for so long. Deer deer can be they, they can that can happen with a deer with a mature deer, but usually what will happen is when classical conditioning usually happens. I've found within deer, it's it's not when you first go into an area and say there is a six and a half year old buck there. If you go in there every day uh, for it for that year while he's six and a half, he's probably not not going to get used to you. But if you're if you're in an area when that deer is young, and you're in there doing things through, throughout, like if you're running a tractor or doing certain things a lot and you're doing it consistently, as that deer grows up, he will he will uh, be classically conditioned and not associate you with danger. So that's Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. I agree with cool. that 100%. I would say that's cool to know because, so here in Wisconsin, I hunt, um, you know, a, a number of types of public um, parcels. Some of those are conservancy properties that are private but made available to the public. But additionally, there's some other public properties that have like hiking trails or state parks that have something similar where there's a lot more human traffic going through, people walking their dogs and things of that nature. 
and I think I've had some oh, great yeah. success in places like that just because um, the deer yeah. are used to people who don't care about their scent, aren't there for that reason, and yeah. um, you know they pick up all sorts of things. So for me, I feel like, man, I don't, I, I'm good not doing anything scent-wise, um, not completely, but you get the <laughs> idea, you know, that they're just a little bit more yeah. acclimated to that type of behavior. Sure. And, yep. Versus the Northwoods, Very Wisconsin, true. the Nicolay National Forest, which is a couple. It's like a couple million acres or something crazy like that. It's um, you know, those deer don't see people at all. They're they're buried in there. They're, there's a thick predation. There's wolves. There's bear. There's cougars. I mean, there's all sorts of things going with their coyotes, etc. Um, and very few people. So I got to imagine a the human scent of there means something very different to a deer that is on a state park where there's people hiking all the time. Yep. Very very true. You know, there's a. Uh... There is a, a, a few properties that I have them on a, a few leases where people go out and they hunt, uh, you know, a good bit. And those deer, you know, they, they are like your, like you were talking about being nocturnal deer being, this goes back to what Jeremy was talking about earlier. Those deer will come out, you know, at the, at the edge of, edge of daylight or they'll go in, you know, the thicket in the edge of daylight and then they'll come out the edge of dark. But there is, there's, one property that I have that I have we have hunted one time in five years and those deer they come out at 5:30 every day they're blatantly all all evening and and most of the morning and then they'll go in bed in the shade and they it's like they prefer to travel in the daytime if if they're not pressured yeah so that's Interesting because Jeremy, what you said earlier was that it, it's not that um, deer, deer aren't naturally completely nocturnal animals or, or what have you, but it's not even just hunting pressure per se. It's human pressure, human society. And I talked about this on my last episode um, a little bit that a deer that's in maybe a retro, a metro area or something to that effect is going to be more prone to hearing traffic and cars starting to buzz by and lights turn on and all that kind of stuff and dogs barking or whatever versus the ones that are further from that kind of property like you just mentioned are coming out in broad daylight right practically because they're just not they're maybe not used to that pattern of human behavior well and there's differences in pressure also um is what we talked about the state punk syndrome where deer is just okay with people but the one thing that's that's the common uh, denominator in all this is we're not going into their bedroom when you're going in a state park and you've got a trail that everyone stays on they can walk that trail a thousand times a day no different than a car going down the interstate but that deer knows where you're at all the time so he chooses his bedding area likewise you know he he makes his bedding area not on that trail. But now when you get off of that trail and go into their bedroom or their bedding area, yep. then you're going to change their behavior completely. So that's one of the big things is letting them come to you instead of going to them. And that's one of the things we apply to our stand locations. I would much rather, for me, I would rather wait that deer out, catch him where he may be on a three or four day cycle coming and checking the, this particular community scrape, or he may be in this little feeding area, or he may only come through this pinch point every three days. But I would rather be on that outskirt than I would to take a chance on bumping him in his bedding area. And, you know, every, there's been hunters that have been extremely successful um, hunting bedding areas, but that's not, that's not, in my opinion, um, and, and knowing how whitetail react to having someone in their bedding area, um, it, that's just not how we choose to hunt. We would much rather have them come to us. And when they do come to you, they're on a whole lot, they're a, a lot less wary, um, they're less more skilled. relaxed, and I think easier to kill. It's interesting. Yeah, if someone was in my bedroom, I'd have a different reaction. <laughs> if I smelled someone's <laughs> cologne or whatever, I'd be like, what the heck is going on here right now? Yeah, I'm looking yeah. for something like you mentioned, these layers, and, and now I'm on alert rather sure. than coming into it somewhere else. Um, that definitely right. makes sense. And 
So the way I understand it thus far is deer um, use their scent similar to how we use our eyes. You know, that's how they see the world. Um, so as good as our vision is as human beings, and it's not as good as some things on the world, but I would argue that a deer's nose is, is guiding them more than their vision. But let's talk about their vision for a little bit too, because one of the episodes I caught or one of the quick tips was, you know, hey, Denim Dan, don't wear blue jeans in the woods. I don't think it was said that way, but more or less like deer pick up blue a little bit more than other colors um, or even light colors will, or will pick up more blue in the light color spectrum. blues, yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, where we see, we see reds much, red more readily than deer. They see blues and, and light colors. So avoiding any blue, uh, avoiding any light, really light colored camo or light hats, that's going to make a big difference. And also knowing that how deer focus, they they don't have this singular focus or focal area like a human being. They can see equally. So they can be looking ahead and focused dead to the side. So they're going to see you just as well when they're looking ahead as if they're looking straight at you. So knowing that and knowing when to move is key. Um, if a deer's alert, doesn't matter what direction they're looking, uh, if their eyes inside of you, that you don't really want to be trying to draw your bow back. So knowing, you know, knowing how to read their body language, which, you know, is something that we take for granted as experienced hunters, but for the new guy that's starting up, he may not recognize what the whacking tail means or, or the flared ears or, or, or flared hair on the rump. You know, he may not be looking for all those things. And, and even, you know, when you start getting close to the rut and you see, see aggression in a buck and you hear the snort wheezes or you see them fluff their hair and, and try to look a little bigger, all those things are, are, you know, keys to knowing when to draw back, when you can move, when you can maybe reposition. So paying attention to all those little body language is important and really there's nothing going to replace that but time in the stand i tell people that all the time there are no shortcuts i mean we can we can teach and try to pass on some of the things that we know and there's a lot of great hunters out there that can do the same but still there's nothing like learning it on your own and and one thing we encourage everyone to do is and this is this may be a little bit redundant but it's learn smarter and what i mean by that is is instead of just going out there and taking a day in as a whole, try to to arm yourself with the things that you need to pay attention to. Like we talked about the food sources. And instead of just going out there blindly and, and not really knowing what to look for, you know, learn those. Learn your taxonomy. Learn the plant species in your area. And, and start paying attention to when we're in the woods, we're always looking to see what's browsed because that will change Every few weeks, you're going to see what food source they prefer. And it doesn't matter, like we talked about, if there's a bean field, a clover field, a corn field, they're still going to be, be browsing because deer are browsers. They're not grazers. 80% of their diet is made up, or well, let's, let's just say 70% of their diet is made up of Forbes. So learn those food sources. That's going to definitely help you become a better hunter. And, and start paying attention to the the body language and, and how they're acting and, and are they licking their nose, which tells you immediately that they caught wind of something that they didn't like. You know, pay attention to all those little things. And, and if you'll do that, you'll become a better hunter. Time in the stand and, and just really paying attention. And a notebook is probably a hunter's best friend. That's a good point. I know um, a number of hunters that keep a notebook and, more or less like when they saw a deer, what was the wind direction? What was the time of day? More for like the documentation, but kind of like what you're talking about too, you know, learning smarter. I believe that when you, I believe that what you focus on in life is what moves. And so I feel like if you're seeking out more knowledge in general about deer hunting and anyone listening to this podcast traditionally, I think is doing that, um, you know, you're, you're trying to improve as a hunter. So Man, I'm losing my thoughts tonight, guys. I'm sorry. I got a lot of notes written that's down okay. here. But just just seeking out knowledge, um, that's what I was going to say. So, like, it, when you're pre-packaging 
some learning like this and you're listening and maybe you don't have the experience to back it, suddenly when you have that experience, that thing that you learned before you experienced it, um, it clicks quicker, right? And so it's lessons that are learned. They're not as hard learned, but I'd argue that hard-earned lessons uh, are stickier in your memory. They really stand out. You know, the guy sure. or gal that, that couldn't identify what that deer was doing when they're licking their nose, they sure will learn quickly when that doe um, or stomps her hoof and blows, right? Like, oh, I did something I wasn't supposed to do. I shouldn't have moved then because they were looking, right? Or they had an agitated tail wag or whatever that looks like. Um, but hearing some of these things makes you a bit more conscious going into it. And when it happens, you go, oh, yeah, that's they did say that. Okay, now I know. Um, whereas if you see that without trying to seek out that knowledge, you might not know that that was something to pay attention to. Right, and, and knowing that knowing what to look for is a big key. Um, you know, we talked about how deer use our sense of smell, and, and we've all had that stubborn doe out there that caught a, caught a little whiff of something that she didn't like, and she stomps for 15 minutes. <laughs> but all is not lost when they start doing that, because if they're stomping and blowing and they haven't ran, then they've got a little bit of wind of something, but they don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. And that happens. You know, there'll be times, I'm sure, as as hunters, you all have experienced where there's a deer 300 yards from you that was blowing and snorting, and it wasn't necessarily, there may not have been a hunter there, they may have, but they've caught wind of something there that they didn't like. So deer hear this more often than you think, and it's not always the end of your hunt. Um, one of the best bucks I ever killed, I had just had a doe blow at me, and, and she eventually couldn't figure out what I was, and and you know, ended up staying there, and I killed one of the bigger bucks I've ever killed. Now, uh, one other thing that I'm going to add, and, and this is not plugging something for Ozonics, because I think there are several yeah. companies that make the same thing, but I am a firm believer in those. Now, I don't think they always help. I'll be the first to, you know, I'm not paid by them. Um, I don't think they always help, but I don't think they ever hurt. And I have definitely seen uh, instances where they did help. So, um, for me, um, I understand the science of it. It makes a lot of sense on how it works. It's not going to be the end all. It's not going to be the answer to going in there and completely killing your scent, but it definitely is one of those tools that I feel I need when I get in a tree stand. Well, just like I said earlier, like the incremental things you can do, right? There's no silver bullet. So going out and buying Ozonics or Sand Crusher or some off-brand version of those things, whatever it looks like, it's not going to be the thing. But that in combination with everything else you're doing, and if you are reading the wind correctly and, and you know where the bedding areas are and you understand where the deer are feeding, et cetera, um, that all, it all adds up, right? There's a, there's a some nation of all of these things that you're doing and putting into practice that I think can really improve your, your odds of success. Um, but the mistake Absolutely. I think is thinking that that is the thing that's going to make it happen. And so again, the marketing of these companies is just super impressive because then they got everyone that's ever killed a big buck. That's, you know, um, supporting that brand with the picture of the bag right there or the Ozonic, whatever. And it's like people, people think that, Oh, that's why they got that deer. Um, that's one factor, right? Luck's another one of them happenstance, you know? Um, well, you know, we've covered you make quite your own a, luck. Yeah, you do. And I think, um, you know, momentum breeds opportunity and consistency um, creates momentum and mo- momentum gives more opportunity. So the more you are seeking this stuff out and trying to improve and the more you're putting into practice and getting out in the woods and learning, um, you know, you're creating more opportunity because next time you're more aware of, you know, whatever you learned last time. Right. And I'm just really excited for bow season here in Wisconsin to be kicking off in you know less than a day practically. I'm I'm pretty stoked if you if you can't tell, um, and so this is a great episode. This will be this will be live tonight after we're done. I will wrap this one up and hopefully I get you know this out to a lot of people between now and the next couple of days. So even as we're looking to get into the the very beginning of our season, it's a, there's a good chance people might not hear this you know, a couple weeks in or maybe a month in. Um, any tips as we're rolling into the season, things are starting to get going? Dave? Um, well, uh, I guess I would I would encourage people to pay attention to the changes happening. Um, as the as the summer foliage and the and the green vegetation starts to 
starts to die off, uh, you'll see the deer transition, you know, into the, into the different food sources. Um, pay attention to that transition. And, um, and if you are hunting a mature buck, this is something that I would, a tip I would definitely give. Um, try to find areas where a buck, a, a, a buck can transition into a couple different, two or three different areas where there may be two or three different groups of does because a large, uh, usually a large buck will position himself in such a way that he is, he is with a group of does early, but he can easily transition to another group of does. Hmm. So in those transition areas where he can go from one place to another, that, that is usually a good place to find him uh, or to, or to locate a, uh, put a stand somewhere in those transition areas. Like for instance, here in the, in hilly areas, um, there's uh, low gaps in mountains that will transition from like one hollow to the next hollow over, or you can go across a cre- across a valley into another valley. Those transition areas are really good, really good places to to get to to catch that buck. But but basically, in early season, pay attention to the the transitioning food sources, and as the bucks you know have uh, have now broken up out of their bachelor groups and started to um, establish dominance. Um, look for It's really important to look for those, as Jeremy had said earlier, those uh, community scrapes. Okay. And then what about things like um, temperature drops and uh, daylight savings, right? It's Here in Wisconsin, our, our days get incredibly short, um, you know, as, as daylight savings. I mean, you know, deer pay far less but... attention to temperature like we think they do. You know, we all, it's too warm, I'm not going to hunt. Or, you know, deer aren't moving good, it's it's too warm. That's that's usually not the case. I can I can show you 80 and 90 degree weather, deer moving all summer. So I promise you temperature's not what affects them. Uh, so the best time to hunt, in my opinion, is when you can. Having good, said that. Good response. I love that. I love that a lot. Go on, sorry. Yeah, and and, and the one thing that I do... If I was going to to say again, you got to hunt when you can. But I like to have multiple stand locations, even for one deer, and that way I can determine the you know the prevailing wind and choose my entry and stand location based on that wind direction. Um, exactly. You know, unfortunately, deer still will tend big bucks will still tend to travel with their nose in the wind, mm-hmm. but it still ups your odds, and and that's the way I choose to hunt. So if I can, you know, say to anybody, make sure you have multiple stand locations and choices, and don't just blindly go, but definitely don't let the weather dictate. You know, I've killed really good deer in 80 degree weather, in 10 degree weather. I've killed them in the snow. I've killed them in the wind. Um, I've killed them on calm days. So again, time in the stand. And one other thing I want to add that Dave and I are, are huge on is we hear so many guys on, you know, you see a guy post a picture of a little four-point on Instagram and people are slamming. And in our opinion is this, and I think as biologists we have the right to, to say this, there's nothing wrong with that. If that guy wants, if he has three Saturdays a year that he can hunt and he wants to kill a spike, a doe, a six-point, that's his right. You know, it's legal, and, and he should be just as proud of that deer as if he killed a trophy. And, you know, and the deal is if, if he has two tags, then maybe the second one he needs to, to wait a little bit. But the guy that, if he's happy with it, then we should all be happy for them. And, and all this Internet shaming, I think, has just gotten ridiculous, hunters against hunters. We all need to stand together. You know, for me... Definitely. I've been fortunate enough to kill some pretty good deer and, and I choose to, to hold off on a, on five and a half and six and a half year old deer. But everybody doesn't have that option. You know, again, we don't all have an unlimited amount of time to hunt. And again, if it's a trophy to you, be proud of it. Don't let anybody else uh, bring you down about it. And, and also keep in mind that, you know, everybody is at a different, you know, different phases in their, in their hunting. You know, some guys may not have been brought up hunting by their 
by their dads or whatever, and they may have started just started hunting at 40 years old, <laughs> and while other guys may have started when they were 11. It, you know, so we have to we should respect that everyone's that everybody you know yep. every, everyone's on their own journey, and that that is a beautiful part of it. You know, that should the the guy that does have more experience, he shouldn't like Jeremy said, he shouldn't be looking at the guy that hadn't harvested a lot of deer, you know, downing him, he should be, he should be mentoring and helping him. Yep. Yeah. Now, like, like I said, where to, to me, where it changes a little bit is the guy, you know, you've killed one. Now don't go out and shoot three spikes this season. You know, don't go out and shoot three immature bucks. If you shoot one immature buck and you're excited about it, then great. Then maybe the next two you kill should be those and hold off a little bit on that next one. But you know, that that's where I come from. Uh, I, I think that if we can all, you know, come to realize that viewpoint that it's a trophy in everybody's eyes, and don't just kill it to say I killed a buck, but you know if that's what you're doing and, and you're pursuing it and and it's a trophy to you, then it's a trophy. I have a very strong opinion that aligns with your what you're saying. Um, I and I've voiced that on this show and I've, I've been on other shows. I've I voiced it um, pretty loudly and. Um, <coughs> I'm as against buck shaming, if you want to call it that, on the internet. Um, <laughs> I've seen it happen to kids, and that's where I think that's where it really set me off at one point. I'm yeah, me, just yeah. over it. It's not you don't do that. Um, nope. well, well, some of the most memorable deer I've ever killed have been little four points and, and spikes when I was first learning to bow hunt, and and honestly, they was as exciting to me as. Is that yeah. you know one seventy on the wall? So hundred percent, hundred percent. It's about the experience, uh, not the trophy. It is. The experience is, and the I trophy, can tell right? you from a, a game manager standpoint, um, you know there are some advantages to to uh, taking more mature animals out of the herd, sure. But <laughs> overall, game management as as game managers across the country, they just need to make certain that we have a certain uh, harvest every year. So whether we're taking young or old, they need to meet those quotas. So there's, you know, if it's legal, then it's legal. So, you know, I just think we all need to to be a little bit more supportive of one another as hunters before we lose our right to hunt um, and stand a little more strong. Couldn't agree more. That being said, talking about um, the experience and things of that nature, you know, I, I'll ask both of you the question. You can decide who answers if both answer. It's up to you guys. But, um, you know, what in, in your memory bank here, what was your most memorable hunt? You go first, Jeremy. Most memorable <laughs> hunt. Honestly, was uh, I was 14, and my uncle, that, that was when I killed my first whitetail. Actually, I was 13. And... Um, my uncle, who had who had taught me how to hunt, my dad was not hunting, but my uncle was, and, and he had left me alone, and I, and it was a spike. It was my first deer, but to me that might as well have been a 190 inch buck, and I'll never I can remember every second of it. I can remember watching that deer walk to within 20 yards, and uh, I can remember watching him go down, and and there was a combination of, of sadness that I'd killed an animal, but the excitement that I was successful, and, and I'll never forget that. And it stayed with me um, since I was 13. Cool. I can remember my first year very, very vividly as well. I was a little bit older. Um, super exciting. Probably one of my favorite hunts. Dave, what about you? Oh. Uh, you know, that's the reason I told Jeremy to go first. <laughs> yeah, too many. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're gonna have a, a big menu I'm, in the restaurant. I'm, sit, I'm sitting in here in my in my outdoor room, and I'm looking around uh, at just some mounts, and I'm just just thinking, man, just uh, I, I don't know. It's it's been a while since I thought about some of the, the stories, um, but you know, I, I guess I'm gonna have to. I guess I'm going to have to go with the go with last year, uh, last season. Um, you know, it was uh, it's not me, uh, it's not me harvesting uh, the deer, but it was actually my wife. Uh, it was uh, it was her first first one. She was uh, she's been. 
wanting uh she'd been wanting uh wanting to harvest a mature deer uh but but wasn't being greedy but uh, at the same time so we had been uh we had been managing this property uh it's a property I told you about we we've only had it once and that was it mm-hmm. uh, in 5 years and we went out and uh, on the first day of season and uh and she harvested a, a beautiful eight point and I don't know, just that, you know, let me say this. I've on several leases, but out of all those leases in the past 11 years that I've hunted those leases, I have only killed one deer off of those leases. The, all of the bucks I've killed in the past 11 years have been on uh, publicly accessible land. Okay. And a lot of people ask me, they say, well, why do you get on the leases if you've only killed one deer in 11 <laughs> years? And I tell them, because what is the most important to me in my journey at the place where I am in my hunting, I guess, career, what is most important to me is the people, is the relationships, that the bonds that are built, the camaraderie, running around out in the middle of the night on a tractor with Jeremy, putting out lime and seed and <laughs> running around with uh, a young young fella, Cole Mitchell. He's 15. He, he hunts with uh, Jeremy and I and goes through the whole process of bringing my wife out there in the field to enjoy creation together. The, that is what I cherish the most. That's awesome. And that's my most recent favorite hunt or favorite most – Favorite, I think favorite is probably the more accurate word rather than memorable um, have been. So last year I brought, I brought a buddy hunting for the first time. And I've done this for several now. I think I'm up to like five or six friends that I've gotten into hunting, if you will. And uh, every time I'm I'm just so stoked to just even get out to the woods with them and teach them like this is the sign you look for. Because they've never even seen, in some cases, a deer, a deer hoof print, right? They've never even seen tracks. The, here's the turds here's yep. the beds here's the scrape here's the rub here's yep. the this is the the way you look at the train and and i'm a novice right like i i um i joke now but i there's on a mug a long time ago i saw the world's okayest hunter that's how i view myself um you know i'm, I'm by <laughs> no means an expert i just love the process and the experience but teaching others and watching them yeah. get excited for the same thing and, and getting them into that i don't know almost like the brotherhood of hunting mm-hmm. um and yeah. that buddy it got it yeah, got that's what it's year. about and it was just, and then it's fun because they don't know, like, oh, what, well, what now? Well, now you have to gut it, but I'll help you. And, and like, now you have to work, right? We got to drag it out of here, buddy. And he's like, what do you mean? We got to, like, yeah. how, like, how do you drag it? Well, I will help you, but you're going to drag it. This is your deer. You know, you're going to do the whole, the whole drag. And every time one of my buddies has gotten a deer for their first time that we've introduced to hunting, they're hooked for life. They're all, now they're all part of deer camp, right? And, um, but it's so exciting. It's that is a really great feeling. So to have that experience with your wife um, has to be just super, super cool to to feel so happy for her to um, witness her. It do definitely that experience was. That. That's yep. great. That's yep. great. Well, thanks so much, guys. You know, this has been super informative. Um, you know, I, I do like to ask at the end, like, let's help the people in the audience who are listening find you guys. And uh, I found you in a couple places. You know, uh, bowtecharchery.com, um, you know, there's a, there's a navigation tab that says Whitetail 101. You live there a little bit. I mentioned I saw you on Carbon TV. I think uh, a friend of mine who's also on Carbon TV is the one that got me into the, the app or whatever on my phone, and you guys showed up. And then I think I follow you both on um, and Bowtech on Instagram, and there's a YouTube channel. So hopefully I'm... Is there any other places people should be going to to find um, specifically Jeremy and, and Dave your content? Be on Mo TV um, starting, I guess, this November. Well, say it so again. Hopefully, our audience will Mo TV. Mo TV. Okay. Yep. My outdoor TV. Um, Dave is actually preparing for a uh, whitetail hunt the first day, and I'll be in Idaho. I'm heading out to Idaho to chase elk around for uh, 10 days. Oh, that's awesome. That's on my list, man. I'm not there yet, but that's awesome. We'll have to keep an eye out for some of your content then. Yeah, we'll be filming the whole thing, and we'll be uh, we'll be 
storing it, and, and it'll be on Wildlife TV series and on our Whitetail 101. So we'll be we'll be keeping everybody up to date on what's going on. We're we're excited about it. Should be a good hunt. Super cool. Well, I'm excited for you guys. I'm I'm happy to see what you're doing. I think you're doing a good thing in the name of you know sportsmanship and and hunting and conservation and helping hunters and adding value and sharing the knowledge to keep people into con- conservationism and into hunting, helping more people get into it and less people leave, making knowledge accessible and sharing it rather than guarding it. Um, I love it. But well, thanks for having us on this evening. We went a little bit long, probably. No, nah, got a little long-winded, but uh, the, as long as the content's good, it can be you know four hours long. And we'll just put it in different parts. But at the end of the day, as long as it's good content, which I think it is, if it was uh, all garbage and long, that'd be a problem. It could be two seconds and no one would like it. <laughs> but I appreciate your time, guys. Awesome. Good luck this season. Yeah, thank, thank you for having us. You too. Yeah. Okay, so it's pretty hard for me to come up with a tip of the week after an episode like that. Though there, there were a lot of tips, so to speak, in that episode from the Whitetail 101 guys. Um, my takeaway, though, is I ought to go get a couple of books. One in, um, you know, Wisconsin native plant ta- uh, taxonomy or, or deer biology. And so I Googled it, real deer biology books. And uh, I also Googled uh, Wisconsin plant taxonomy books and, you know, Amazon for the, the plant taxonomy has some relatively inexpensive books. We're talking like two bucks, eight bucks, um, up to $24. Now there's a book that I saw that was an ebook that was like $70. You know, I'm not trying to take a, a college course in this stuff, but it would be great to have some sort of just simple field guide along with you. Um, there's probably guys and gals that already do that kind of stuff. So again, my takeaway is I want to go get a book like this, walk into Barnes Nobles and see what I can walk out with or just get something from Amazon. And additionally, uh, Dear Biology Books, it's funny, I actually came across a book that I started reading and hadn't um, picked it back up in a while, but it's The Hidden Life of Deer. But there's also a book, um, The Biology of Deer, there's plenty of them. So just simply kind of taken um, some of their advice really in and learning a little bit more about the why these animals are doing what they're doing and behaving how they're behaving and taking some of that understanding into the woods rather than taking the quote-unquote hunter's approach and just trying to do all these different tactics I think it'd be really cool to have some more of that knowledge and, and super beneficial additionally with the bow season right around the corner I'll just go ahead and give myself a shameless plug here but by all means, please go download the Where to Hunt app. It's available on the Android Play Store, the Google Play Store, and also the iOS, iTunes Play Store. It's free. Um, you know, if you if you want to go incognito and just track your hunting party or your buddies that might be out in the woods with you, it's a $2 download. Not a big deal at all. Um, those prices might be changing in the future, and some of the, the functionality and, and uh, features of the app might be changing in the near future as well. But... As it stands right now, free uh, for public use and two bucks if you want to go incognito. But it might help you scout and avoid other hunters um, and or, you know, some of the people that use it to find new spots. If that's how you want to use it. Um, cool, I guess. Nothing I can do about that. But thanks, everybody, for listening. Go give uh, the podcast a rating and a review or some feedback. That'd be great. And good luck this weekend, everybody. I can't wait to see you out there um, or not because we're all in camouflage. But have a great time, public. <laughs>